Well, welcome to See Here Love. I'm your host, Melinda, and I'm glad you are joining us today for a very special show called Our Asian Voices. With the rise in verbal abuse, online harassment, and physical attacks against Asian Canadians and Asian Americans since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, I thought it was important for myself as a Filipino Canadian to use my voice and platform to speak up and against the anti-Asian racism that has been increasing this year. And I also thought it would be important to listen to other Asian Canadians share their truth and experiences and action steps. So this time together is to listen, learn, lean in and act, to hear our collective Asian voice. Now the Chinese Canadian National Council's Toronto chapter compiled the results of two surveys that tallied more than a thousand occurrences of racism against Asian Canadians since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic and reported between March 2020 and December 31, 2020. And the report points to how quickly the coronavirus became racialized after the first known infections were discovered in Wuhan, China in December of 2019. And it was also repeatedly called the China virus by prominent figures and influential people such as a former US president and by some of our media outlets. And the analysis that's coming through, which confirmed cases in every Canadian province included these findings. That 44% of cases of anti-Asian racism were reported in British Columbia and 40% were reported in Ontario. That 60% of the victims were women. That 73.4% cases of racism reported were verbal harassment. That 11% of the cases included violent physical assault or unwanted contact. And 10% of cases included being coughed or spat on. The report also found that elderly people, young people, and those in low income jobs or who did not speak English were more vulnerable to attacks. And according to this data, most incidents occurred in public spaces such as parks, streets, sidewalks, restaurants, grocery stores, and other food sector locations, as well as on public transit. Also, a crowdsourced Statistics Canada study of more than 35,000 Canadians uh, surveyed in August 2020 found that Canadians of Asian descent were more likely to report increased harassment during the pandemic. And of the Asian Canadians who reported harassment, 64.4% were Korean, 59.6% were Chinese, 52.7% were Southeast Asian, 46.6% were Filipino, and 38.9% were South Asian. So this is a conversation that we must have. And from this, my hope is that we will learn from one another and take personal and community action steps toward peace, reconciliation, understanding, respect, and the valuing of all people. So I'm so thankful to have five special guests with us, with me today. Five Asian Canadians will be sharing their thoughts on the rise of anti-Asian racism, their thoughts on the stats I just shared, and their own personal story. So first, I just wanna welcome Alyssa Esperaz, a Chinese Filipino Canadian and the daughter of immigrants to Canada. She was born and raised in the suburbs of Toronto, Ontario, and has spent much of her youth wrestling with and more recently embracing her Asian Canadian identity. And currently she brings her passion for youth justice and Jesus to her role as content and communication specialist at Compassion Canada. Welcome, Alyssa. Thanks, Melinda. Glad to be here. Good to have you. Well, next we have Francis Kim, who was a second generation Korean Canadian born and raised in the greater Toronto area. She currently lives in a multi-generational home shared with her husband, two young children, dad, and stepmom. Frances currently serves as director of Envision Canada with a CNMA, a startup initiative focused on developing and equipping the emerging generation. She is only beginning to contribute her voice on topics of identity, culture, mentorship, and leadership. And Frances is also pursuing part-time studies toward completing her master's at Tyndale, and will also graduate from the Aero Executive Leadership Program this fall. Welcome, Francis. Thank you, Melinda. 
It's good to see you again, Francis. Next, we have Timothy Li Hui Tang. How did I do? Excellent. Very good. Very, very good. Timothy Tim is a second generation Chinese Canadian born as the youngest of three in Toronto. His parents came as international students from Hong Kong and Taiwan, respectively. And with three children himself, Tim continues to church as a father, son, brother, and husband. And after more than 20 years, you're too young for this, Tim, of congregational pastoral ministry, he's been seconded to the Tyndale Intercultural Ministry Center, where he now leads as a director in this role. He has had the opportunity to continue to empower uh, diaspora leaders and raise the intercultural com competency of many faith-based and non-faith-based leaders and organizations. Welcome, Tim. Thanks. I'm here just to keep the uh, gender diversity balanced. So. <laughs> I knew you were going to say something like that. <laughs> at some point, at some point, at some point. Amazing. Okay. Reverend Lisa Hanmi Pak is a second generation Korean Canadian and Toronto native. Her parents are from Korea immigrating in the late 1970s and have now lived most of their lives in Canada. She grew up in the Korean Canadian church and has served in the Korean diaspora church in the United States, Canada, Korea, and Singapore. Currently, she is serving as the global strategist for finishing the task at Saddleback Community Church in Southern California. Welcome, Lisa. Thank you, Mel. It's really good to be here with you. And Lisa uh, was a former See Here Love co-host last season. So we have a lot of connection. And I forgot to mention Francis now is currently a See Here Love monthly segment contributor as well. Mm -hmm. And finally, we have Dr. Mary Swin Lee Lin, born in Taipei, Taiwan. Both parents also were born there. Dr. Mary immigrated to Canada when she was one and a half years old. She didn't speak a word of English until she started school when she was five and had to learn in an immersive experience. She was raised within the Taiwanese community, went to Taiwanese church, and actually even married a Taiwanese guy. Her parents were very involved in the Taiwanese independence movement to free from Chinese occupation. And mom was the first female president of the Taiwanese Canadian Association. And in that role, she was a spy called yeah. the White Swan and almost got herself killed. Okay, I never knew that. I married yeah. for so many years, I didn't even know this. They had various political people of interest in and out of their home and as kids, Dr. Mary, and her sister participated in protest marches in Washington. She is an author, a podcaster, and a psychologist. Welcome, Dr. Mary. Thank you. Wow, 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 panel. This is a mighty panel, and we have a lot to talk about. I wanna start off with this first question. As second-generation Canadians, Alyssa, Tim, Lisa, and Francis, your parents immigrated to Canada. And Mary, you are a first-generation Canadian who immigrated with your parents to Canada. What has it been like for you personally growing up in Canada as a second-generation Canadian and Mary as a first-generation Canadian? Uh, Alyssa, let's start with you, your experience growing up here in Canada. Yeah, thanks, Melinda. Um, yeah, so I was, I grew up in the suburbs of Toronto and in my local elementary school, my family was probably one of three, maybe five at some points, uh, East Asian families in my elementary school. And so growing up, I, one of my biggest life goals was just to hide the fact that I was Asian, which obviously was very difficult, but there were things there were just in the way I spoke and interacted with people. I, and no one told me to do this. Certainly not my parents. They were and are very proud to be Asian, Asian Canadian, but it just the, my worst nightmare was to be singled out as different. And so, you know, anecdotes, like I remember people saying to me in, in elementary school, like, oh, you're so lucky. Like, I love Chinese food. Like, you are, like, you probably have Chinese food all the time. And like, that's awesome. And like, that's problematic in and of itself. And that's a whole nother conversation. But the next thing was like, I would always respond with like, actually, I don't really like Chinese food that much. And I don't like, that wasn't necessarily true. I just was not wanting to be singled out as different. And so I think for me, there was so much, there was a lot of dis disorienting moments of trying to figure out my identity growing up where I didn't see myself represented or reflected in my neighbors or the people around me and in the media and in the media I was consuming as well. And so, uh, you know, the Asian Canadian experience is so complex 
and I didn't have the tools to kind of understand that complexity. And that was a lot of my experience until now I feel really thankful to have the language and tools to understand that. Mm. Thank you, Alyssa. So honest. Now, Tim, I saw that you're nodding. Is that in, I, I get what you're saying, Alyssa. What is your experience, Tim? Uh, yeah, everything from, you know, the not wanting to stick out, you know, which is a very Asian trait, you know, like I, I'm not going to bring up any Asian proverbs right now, maybe later on in the show, but, but all of us can think of certain, you know, just kind of voices in our head. Don't stick out. Don't stick out. Don't stick out. And, and when you do, you're kind of like, oh, no, 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 I don't want to stick out too much. Right. Let alone disagree with something in class or whatever it is. And, and, and then, yes, yeah, my, my thoughts went to everything she talked about with food and stuff like that. Right. It's like, yeah, like, like my friend, like my friends were in, in high school, I wouldn't talk too long here, um, but you know, they would, I would bring Chinese food and they'd say, wow, you, what is that dog food you're bringing? But they would say it affectionately, which really isn't affectionate, but they'd say, what's that dog food? Oh, can I have some? Because they wanted to try some, even though it smelled up like the entire lunchroom kind of thing. Right. So it, it was kind of like this double-edged sword of your food is very different than all of ours. It's strange but let me try some. So it, 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 yeah, yeah, that's, so I resonated with a lot of what Elsa was saying. Lisa, now you are having some little giggles and I think some parts of like, yeah, I've had some similar experience. What, yeah. is, what is your story, Ben, growing up in Canada? I think my story can be summed up in the phrase good, bad, and the ugly. Because like, let's admit it, there's some funny moments and I'm not gonna lie, I use some of those stereotype um, thinking to my advantage. Everyone thought you're Asian, you know, martial arts. I'll go with that, you know. Um, and a lot of the conversations, they were out of an innocent ignorance, not a malicious ignorance, especially when I was growing up. Because like Alyssa, I grew up in Mississauga in like the 90s. And so there was not a lot of diversity in the schools that I went. Francis and I went to the same high school. Um, and so when you're in those moments, there's a lot on this journey um, that is the real struggle that Alyssa explained, this identity struggle, like, do I want to stand out? Do I not want to? But for me, I'm like, well, you can't really hide that you're Asian. And so if they think I'm good at math, and my goodness, I was, I was very studious. And so it didn't mind that there were certain, I didn't personally mind that there were some stereotypical um, images that I feel because I'm not going to sacrifice my marks just because of my ego, like I'm going to achieve. That's how I'm wired as a human being, not as an Asian. There were harder moments when my dad who owned a dry cleaner, some of the customers, I could tell by the tone of their voice because I'm a native English speaker. That hurt me. And that's when I would step in and I'd be like, I'll take this customer. Don't worry about that. And then, you know, my dad can do what he does best. There was a struggle with food and you know you're just like well you know this kimchi stuff does smell bad especially when it gets fermented along the way which my dad loves and my mom tends to like the fresher stuff and so you just struggle it all out so for me it's it's been good it's been there's hard moments and there's some just funny ugly moments good funny bad funny um and it for me it just reminds me that god is sovereign and at this stage in my life i'm like this i'm gonna own this journey because this is the one that god gave me I'm not going to blame anybody else. There are hardships in everybody's life. And there are certain things that maybe shouldn't have happened. But how do we make something constructive out of this? So I, this is God's gift to me. My life has been my curriculum for character building and understanding human dignity, not only in myself, but also in others. So it's been good, the bad and the ugly. Um, but it's been very full, very, very full. It's good, Lisa. Thank you. The good, the bad and the ugly. Uh, Mary, uh, your experience growing up. Um, again, you're like first generation because you immigrated with your family at one and a half. What has it been like for you growing up in Canada? Yeah, I think I'm the oldest in the group here. Uh, so I actually grew up in the 60s and 70s. And please don't do the math, Lisa. <laughs> um, so it was a very different uh, time. Uh, I grew up in um, parts of downtown Toronto and North York as well. And really as a family, we were the only uh, Asian family. Uh, I went to a Christian school, a very, very white Christian school. We also moved to the U.S. for a short stint. My dad was getting his master's degree into a very tiny town, and there was only white people there. Um, so I knew pretty early on that we were different. The ironic thing, um, you, you know, you talk about, Tim, about fitting in. Uh, I, that was what I was taught, too. Well, my, my parents sent us to school without a word of English, 
with homemade matching outfits, which my mother prided herself in. We have pictures of her from the different ages where she's going like this because we're getting taller and we literally have the same polyester outfit. So yeah, we didn't really quite fit in. Oh, oh yeah, and then she had this perm that she wanted to do, so had hair like this as well. All that to say was, I, I, I don't think I ever felt anything but other, but um, my temperament is to, is to want to fit in, not cause problems, not make any waves. Um, we grew up with a bit of the fatalistic thinking that it is what it is, and there's not much you can do about it. Um, trust the Lord. You know, he's in control. So just put your head down, work hard, don't cause any trouble. And I would say that, like Lisa, I have that achievement drive. So that's what I put my efforts into. And I would put all my time to excel in school. And that became part of my identity. I was the smart girl in the class. Wow. Do you have pictures of your polyester outfits, Mary? Oh, absolutely. (laughs) And the perm, too. (laughs) I want to get to Francis, but I have a question about this identity, which is being brought up as as far as its Asian identity and and how we work. But Francis, your experience growing up as second generation Korean Canadian. Yeah. So um, similarly, my parents immigrated to Toronto in 1979. I was born in a blizzard on December 3rd the next year. And I would say my family lived what I call a nomadic existence. Like we literally moved four times before I turned five. And we continued to experience these types of disruptive moves through my entire youth and adolescence um, as my parents sought to find stable work. So I never started and finished in the same elementary, middle, uh, even high school until I entered university at Laurier. So as a child to cope with this constant sense of change and transition. I learned to acutely observe my surroundings and then adapt myself accordingly. And I think that that skill honed in the home has naturally then served to influence choices outside of the home. And so if I think about overt kind of racism, um, there is definitely instances in elementary that, you know, we've already discussed with food and things like that. But I still also remember a high school teacher, like it affected my academics too. I was marked lesser than my colleagues, even for a work that I had done for them. And so I still struggle with geography as a geography teacher to this day (laughs) because of that. But I think more importantly, um, all of these early experiences have ingrained in me the similar message that sticking out, being different is either embarrassing at best or disadvantageous and humiliating at worst which just further then reinforces this deep rooted importance of fitting in, maintaining status quo at all costs. And so this year has been a very um, revealing journey, you know, for me and, uh, and yeah, I'm still wrestling through a lot of what we're ha- what we're discussing today. Thank you, Francis. I want to get to, before I get to the, the question about um, how you're doing in light of the increase of anti-Asian racism, I think that is a question that many people are asking about this identity of achievement and striving and being really great at academics and music and, you know, kind of keep your head down and don't make a scene. I I just want to spend and land on this just for a few minutes. How does that make you feel that that has been sort of a stamped identity on you? You know, we see, you know, Asians and immediately that is the assumption of how you are, what you do. And and the work that you do, what has that been like, Alyssa? What about what are your thoughts on that? I have so many thoughts, but I think it's yeah, it's such an interesting question. And I think in conversations about anti Asian racism, this comes up a lot. Is the conversation around well, the stereotypes have benefited you, or the stereotypes are good stereotypes? So uh, is that really racism or? don't again just put your head down don't complain and accept the fact that you got the best stereotypes of like all the all the possible ones and and I think too a lot of Asian a a lot of Asian Canadians feel upset by that stereotype because it almost um suggests like oh you didn't work hard then or you didn't have like you were just like stereotyped into your achievement and I think you know both things can be true like really harmful stereotypes exist and at the same time you know, Asian Canadians, a lot of us 
do work really hard and achieve things and are really smart. And, and all of those things can be true at once. And I think that's part of the complexity I was talking about earlier is that inserting the Asian experience into conversations about racism really messes with people's heads because it doesn't fit their kind of black and white simplistic stories that we know about racism. And so it really causes people to step back. And I think that's why people are often hesitant to have the conversation about anti-Asian racism. Mm, that's good. Tim, your thoughts in response to what Alyssa's saying or your own thoughts of stereotypes and identity? Yeah, yeah I, I think I'll, I'll add to it. I mean, the the some of the language around it right now is um, the model minority, you know, talk and model minority myth. And uh, like one of the one one of like this, it, it, that's a huge conversation. Like that could be another two hour segment, right? But um, like one of the one of the huge factors in that is that in number one, you're you're lumping all Asians together. They all should look like this and cookie cutter, you know, values, performance, and whatever. But in some ways, you're actually you're actually dehumanizing an entire people group by putting them all together as they should be like this. Um, and, and, and I think it is that dehumanizing that really makes it so complex and, and undervalued in the greater society and in the greater dominant society being white. I mean, I don't want to just throw another culture or another people group under the bus, but when you dehumanize one, it lifts up another. And, and I think that's, that's part of the conversation here in terms of, hey, that model minority myth really does affect us, even though it, it, there's advent, advantages to it as, as well. Mm-hmm. Lisa, your thoughts on that? I want to give some context to my understanding of where this idea of the studious Asian that plays classical music. Um, I think for me, and when I look at the Korean community that I grew up in, um, a lot of it was this strategy of breaking the um, poverty cycle in one generation, which was educate, educate your kids. Because then when they get white collar jobs, professional jobs, number one, there's stability in finance, but there's also respect that maybe our parents couldn't get, right? And so I understand the strategy. I lived it. I just happened as a human being, not necessarily as an Asian. I did do classical music. I enjoyed it until I didn't. And then my parents didn't force me. Um, I loved academics just like Dr. Mary did. But if you told me and any of my youth students, I would fight for them to say they're not that. They're not just that. I just happened to overlap, just personally speaking, with some of the Asian stereotypes, and I didn't mind. But if Alyssa is telling me that she doesn't like it, then I would fight for that, and I have for my youth students. Now, Tim brought, brings up something very interesting, which is a model minority, and I find that interesting in so many ways. And one of the most problematic things, and I just read about this, and I mulled over it over the last couple of days, is that when you have a model minority like Asians, you tend to pit them against other minorities, and that's when it becomes super problematic because we're not the model minority that you can use to discriminate and be racist to others. We're not that people. Like it just happens to be some of the traits that are prevalent because of the immigrant mindset that certain Asian groups brought over in the first generation. Doesn't really exist in the second and third generation. Like it, you're, a lot of kids don't wanna go to higher education and they should be free not to. Take a gap year, go to college, trade school, whatever the case is. But it's that model of minority that is used to say, hey, look at those American Japanese. Look how well they are as opposed to the black yeah. Americans. And that, that's what I find very, it's a multifaceted term, model minority. And that is one of the facets that I really don't like. Because I think they, it's used in a very negative way, and that's not uplifting for the dignity of the human race. Mary, your thoughts? You've been nodding a lot in this in the conversation. Yeah, I mean, with that comes. I mean, it sounds like it's a positive label to be a model minority, like we're the best. But actually, I, I agree with Lisa. It really isn't. Um, not only that, it possibly could be used to discriminate against you, but also. Um, it could be used like, well, you already have all these opportunities. Everything's already going your way. You, you can't complain or why should you go after this or that? When you think about even the, the fields that um, Asians seem to get into, there's a lot of service type of industries. You know, even if you are a doctor, you still are serving. And there is um, a sort of a, a presentation of humility that we're less than, and we just kind of quietly do our thing. Um, so that's some of what I observe. I would say for myself, 
fitting in was huge. That was such an important part of my life. And so I became as white as I could possibly be. Um, I think kind of like you, Alyssa, just saying, well, I don't like Chinese food. It's just a way to just fit in. And um, I, um, I, I went counter a lot of things. Um, and and I, if you heard me on the phone, you wouldn't know that I'm Asian at all. So that was, that was what I did. And I think for me, the sorrow was, and looking back, that I really lost a sense of identity as, a, as, a, as an Asian Canadian and uh, even more so, I raised two adult kids. Uh, I was not passing on to them our heritage. And that brings me great sorrow. You know, since then, you know, they thankfully have grandparents who've been able to fill in some gaps in their stories. But really, like, what was I ashamed of that I was not sharing that with my kids? Mm -hmm. All right. Francis? Your response to the conversations and thoughts from Alyssa, Lisa, Mary, and, and Tim? Yes. Um, well, I resonate actually with what Mary just said, because when you spend so much time, like decades actually, with this intense desire and longing to belong and to fit in, to hide your difference, mm -hmm. and then acknowledge the many ways that you have benefited by assimilating so well that you now act like, walk like, talk like, you know, um, you are almost, you are like the, the dominant white culture that you're surrounded in. Um, it's all of a sudden very disruptive to all to focus on the very thing that you were subconsciously trying to, to hide. And so um, beyond the outer visible differences, I think it's really the internal subconscious bias that even confronting within ourselves, you know, what is it that makes me distinct as, as, as an Asian woman and how can I embrace and learn more about my home culture, my heritage in the process. Um, so yeah. Those are powerful thoughts. I mean, this is something like almost like a second show on you know identity and sort of wanting to hide and be like everybody else. And I think we might have to do that, but I wanna get to how you are doing. You just heard these stats from these surveys you heard the numbers, you heard what is happening, especially this past year with the coronavirus. I wanna know how you're doing. I think it's important that we take pause and allow space to really listen to how people are doing, how they're feeling. So Tim, I wanna start with you. How are you doing in your family as you've witnessed in the news and, and watched on YouTube uh, just the harassment, verbal, physical, the spitting on, the coughing on, the comments like go back to where you came from over and over. How are you doing through this? Um, how is your soul and how is your family? So so thank you for asking and thank you for like genuinely because I know, you know, we, we know each other and I know you're asking not because not because it's the script, but you, you genuinely care about how I am doing and all our friends here, right? Like, um, I, I think when I first started seeing, uh, not just the news, but even, even within our congregation, people would report back, this happened. And we were like, what? Right. And, and I think that's, that's exactly where I kind of stayed for a long time. Like I was in just such utter shock that this was happening, right? Like not just people being excluded and being left out and not feeling like they're belonging because that's kind of the story of our lives, but being, you know, active things being done towards people. Um, and you know, obviously that shock moves to, to just deep sadness. Um, but then I think where I'm at right now is, is very much, I mean, and even going back to your first question about thinking about us as Asian Canadians growing up and our, our parents, for some of us, are you know, our parents were the first to come. I mean, my, so my heart now goes to, and very much for fear of, my parents, right? I mean, we see that it's a lot of the art elderly that's targeted and targeted in public too, right? There was a time when you'd say, oh, stay in public, nothing will happen to you. Um, and now I actively will say to my mom, be careful out there. And I can't believe I have to say that, right? To really be careful because I, you know, wherever you're going, like, let me know if you need me to come. And all the thoughts of even, sorry, something else I kept thinking about as we were talking here was like um, going back to how things were in Canada. So my dad came in the early fifties and as an international student, he was allowed to study and stay here. But when it came time for him to apply for a visa or to permanent residency, he was told to his face, I can't approve this. 
don't you know, Chinese people are not welcome here. Like that was said to his face. Right. And, and for me, like, that's what all of everything happening now is bringing up for me. Like all of a sudden my parents are not safe again. Um, you know, if somebody does this to me, sure. You know, I'll fight back. I'm, I'm still able-bodied enough. I'm young enough that I feel like I can, you know, still stick up for myself, but my parents, it's not fair for them to go through this again. Um, and, and that's, that's kind of where I'm at. How are your parents doing? Good. Good. Um, they got their first shot with vaccine, which is great. <laughs> so I'm really happy about that. And they've been, they've kept safe, but, uh, but every time they go out, it's, it's, there's a little bit of fear. Like, are they going to be okay? Hey mom, tell me which grocery store you're going to. Like, are you sure it's going to be a safe neighborhood? Are you sure? You know, but she's independent. She feels like she, she wants to go. Um, but yeah, but, but she, you know, she, she watches the news. She, she reads the reports. So she's, she's aware of what's out there for sure. Thanks for sharing Tim. Hey, it's Chris, friend of See Here Love with Melinda. Sorry to interrupt this conversation, but I just had to let you know that the only way that See Here Love gets to produce fun and authentic conversations like this one is through your financial donations. So go to seeherelove.com and click on the big donate button. Thanks for your support. Let's get back to the show. Alyssa, how are you doing? How are you doing through processing all that you're seeing and feeling um, and witnessing today? Yeah. I mean, obviously the first emotion or the first response is grief. Like Tim said, that sadness of just even, you know, the Atlanta shooting, I just not wanting to lose sight of the lives that were lost and and grieving that and, and letting myself feel that and not becoming desensitized to, you know, there's been dozens and dozens of these videos now, just a new one kind of came out in the past couple of days. That's just horrifying to watch. And it's so easy to become desensitized. And, and I don't want that. So I try to lean into that grief and understand what it's telling me. And then this, especially in the past couple of weeks, there's been actually a sense of exhaustion. And at first I didn't know where it was coming from. And then I realized it's just exhausting to watch the aftermath of these things, which is your lived experience being put up for debate in the public arena. And and even in the church, which I think was especially difficult, is to not have certain parts of the church grieve with you and mourn with you, but instead go, well, you know, are you sure that it was racially motivated? Are you sure that, are you overreacting? And to, to, as an Asian woman, to be able to like literally feel in your body and, and recognize like, no, that is the racism and the misogyny that I experience every single day. And sometimes, oftentimes, unfortunately, even within church and Christian spaces, I, I can, I know that that's not up for debate. Like I know that in my body. And so that was, that's kind of the exhaustion of realizing like, oh, some people are are debating this. Like this isn't an intellectual exercise for them. My lived experience is an intellectual exercise for them. And so there's that exhaustion. And then the third thing though, that I don't want to lose sight of is that there has been encouragement and I do feel thankful in the past couple of weeks of people who have reached out and people who have, um, yeah, reached out to me, asked how I am and, you know, conversations like this that we're able to have and that there does seem to be a movement of like, no more, we're, we're not keeping our heads down anymore. We're not being quiet. We're not just going to be the model minority anymore. We're, we're done with that stuff. And and let's stand up and say something about it. And it's long overdue. And so I do feel thankful for that as well, even in the midst of that grief and exhaustion. Beautiful, Alyssa. And you know what? That really speaks to the people that are listening and watching of how important it is for encouragement and this allyship and to and to stand with us and speak up and ask how we're doing, even though you you feel awkward about it keep doing it and we might not respond on text you know in in five minutes after you send it but keep asking and keep you know standing with us that's fantastic francis while Alyssa was talking about grief and exhaustion i noticed Mm -hmm. a a head uh, a head nod as she was saying that uh where does that come from Mm -hmm. in your own experience how are you doing in your family through this year um well 
to be real honest, I actually feel disoriented most times. And definitely I'm not used to using my voice to speak in this way. And this is actually the second only, like the only, the second real environment that I've had to verbally process out loud. Um, and the first was just this past Saturday. Um, it's, it's not easy to talk about this topic. And this comes on the heels of in this past year, you know, with the murders of George Floyd, Greta Taylor, and countless others, where we see the world crying out for Black Lives to Matter, for racial um, justice. And I just became confronted with, I think, my own complicity in all this. And so I can't now unsee what I've seen. I can't erase the images or the instances of Black and Indigenous and now Asian men, women, and children being hated on to the point of violent assaults and murder. Um, I definitely can visualize and picture myself or my family members, my community in these stories. And I just, um, it's very unsettling <laughs> at the fact that I can no longer be ignorant of these issues that are systemic, you know, that they are embedded in the systems and structures that we are a part of in every context, Alyssa, you mentioned the church. And I was personally disappointed that, you know, nothing was acknowledged or even said or prayed uh, in the church, because if it isn't in the church, where, where can we grieve? Where can we lament? Where can we pray? Um, so, so yeah, I am, I'm still a bit raw and disoriented, but at the same time, um, you know, encourage that there are spaces like these being created for, for our collective sense of not only awareness, but, but change. Mm. It's a good word, disoriented. It's an honest word. It's an open word, Francis. So I appreciate that, that sometimes we don't have the answers or the specific language in it, that there are words like disoriented that can kind of explain the feeling of what we're, what we're going through. So thank you for your honesty. Lisa, your thoughts and, and how are you doing? How's your mom? Um, your mom was always a big prayer warrior whenever she came on set at See Here Love. We loved mm -hmm. your mama. Mm -hmm. How's she doing and how are you doing through this time? I think um, it, it was similar to Timothy, um, sorry, Tim, Timothy, where it's <laughs> at first you're like disbelief because I mean, we're not naive. We know that racism exists. But you hope that a nation like Canada, which, I mean, Toronto is one of the multicultural gateways of the world. You hope that we can do better. And yet, and, and you know, um, Mary's lived it, our parents have lived it. And you're just hoping that we're back. It seems almost like we're sliding back to square one. Um, and so there is this disbelief. There is this frustration. Lament was a word that I um, wrote down, too, as I was listening to everybody talking. Um, and like Timothy, I worry for my parents, like my mom and my dad. So when my dad goes out, especially because my dad knows less English than my mom, I want to go out with them because, and he's also hard of hearing. So I don't want things to be misunderstood. And I also don't want him to be hurt by it. Like, you know, like in Korean, it's mom's hung in English. Like, I don't want him to hold it in his heart because other people are treating him this way. And one word that interestingly came to mind for me was actually resilience because both my parents, um, very different personalities, but they have a sense of resilience to them. Um, my dad, um, for those of you who don't know, was born in 1946 in the northern part of the peninsula, which is now currently North Korea, before the war. And so he comes down post-war, starving for years, you know, with eight you know, siblings and just a mom that our grandfather had taken off because the communists were coming. It was very confusing times. And so he lives through this time and he's got all those lived memories in his bones and he's like, and there's a sense of resilience and gratitude and a little bit of that, what, you know, not in a sense, like, I don't care what's happening, but it's not going to get to me. And that to me, it was very hopeful. And what bothers me is that a young generation like Alyssa's has to deal with it again. I thought we were past this conversation, right? But hey, here's the thing. Let's roll up our proverbial sleeves. I know Tim's got young kids. I know Francis has young kids. How are we going to make this better for the upcoming generation? And I am very hopeful as well, because I feel like there are more people on the side of human dignity than not. And these things are springing up. But now that we know it's there, how do we ally ourselves with people from all backgrounds and all walks of life and all and diversity? And because I absolutely believe that there are more people for 
the human um, image made in the image of God than there are against. And that for me, I'm an eternal optimist in that. I absolutely believe that, so. Well, thank you for that. We need that. We need that optimism and hopefulness, Lisa, today. Mary, how are you doing? Your family and kids uh, in light of the increase of anti-Asian racism this past year? Yeah, well, uh, my husband's in the middle of renovating, so he's not thinking about anything else. <laughs> um, for myself, it's been um, it's been rough. Uh, like uh, Alyssa and Francis, I have been feeling tired. Um, it's a different kind of tired. It's emotional exhaustion. I, I mean, I've for much of my life, if I feel strong emotions, I just typically, you know, push it down, suppress it, and so. It's not like the situation happened that was I was personally involved, but it was such a trigger of all that push down emotions that I just keep on. Oh, I'm going to be OK. I'm OK. You know, kind of keep calm, have a smile on your face. Nothing's going on. But I, I, I'm surprised then when these situations happen, how much it hits me and I do feel exhausted. And I said um, also being raised, um, the, the generation I was raised, uh, racism was very, very apparent. It was not hidden at all. Um, and one of the things I would say I struggled with as a female Asian was um, the whole sexualization of females, Asian females. Um, you know, I was in the era where that's kind of like the geisha girls where they kind of came and the, gave the man a really good time and then served them food and rubbed their feet. And uh, the number of times that I uh, was propositioned by white men uh, is innumerable. And um, it, it, when, you know, we, you and I, Mel, we had gone out for lunch and there was these white men there and they were saying some things that I felt was inappropriate. It just brought it all back. And normally I just kind of learned to mute it out. Don't think about it. It becomes, you, you become inured to it where you don't even notice it anymore. It's just the way it is. Um, so with all of this going on, <clears throat> with the fact that these women worked at a massage parlor, which has a sexualized connotation to it and all of that, I, I don't know all the details. For me, that was one of the bigger triggers. It wasn't just being Asian. It was also just that component of being female and vulnerable, mm -hmm. for sure. Um, <clears throat> my kids um you know i had hoped that they weren't experiencing it my kids are probably the same age as you Alyssa. i'm guessing in their 20s uh and um my daughter works in theater so she's regularly having conversations about racism and inclusion um she's had some tough experiences when she was in university where uh, in theater you're looking for parts and she really felt that because she didn't have the look she wouldn't get the parts and then when all of this started to become a big deal, because there were some um, issues at Queens University with racism, she was starting to get parts. And then she's like, am I getting it just because I'm Asian? Am I, or am I getting it because I'm talented? So they're kind of in this place, like how much does my identity affect my life today? And how do I respond? Mm -hmm. Wow, Mary, thank you for sharing that. And thank you all of you. Uh, I think it's important to ask how we are doing. I think it's important for all of us to reach out and ask our friends and neighbors and 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 you know former and current guests on the show how they are doing and really listen, really care. I think what I'm hearing from you know from all of you in this, you know, it's exhausting. There's been lament and grief, and we need safe spaces to grieve well, to lament well together on our own and together to be open to share the frustrations. Uh, and I hope, you know, this can, this time can be, you know, a starting place. And as people are listening and watching that they will also commit to creating safe spaces uh, for honest conversations where we can reflect and learn together and grow and freak out and fight it out, but, but come to, you know, understanding on this. Tim, do you want to say something? I see you there. Yeah, I was, I was gonna, I mean, you've all, you've asked us and, and we all know you Mel. So thank you for your friendship and thank you for inviting us. Um, and thank you for asking us how we're doing, but honestly, like, how are you doing? <laughs> wow. Thank you. 
I think, I mean, there was a lot of triggers and all of a sudden the emotion just happened. This is wild. Just listening to you. I think the emotion comes from listening to you with great courage and bravery. I think it always triggers something to hear about how much you love your parents and how this has been something that's really been hard in the safety of your parents. I think as I look at the numbers, you know, the numbers saying that uh, 60% of the victims that have been harassed are women. And that does something to me because I think all my life it's been hard as a Filipino Canadian woman, gender, color, has all been something I've had to fight through and against and prove myself like a hundred thousand percent all the time. So it can be exhausting because it's always just the push and the push and the push because of how I look or my gender. So these, these tears aren't bad tears, Tim. I think it's just, you know, tired, a bit of exhaustion, but also hopeful tears that as we have these conversations, if I can facilitate these more, I want to, and I want to do more, you know, for <clears throat> Asian Canadians and for women. So I think that's where, you know, my soul is. And I think just watching some of the things that have happened are, I think at the, you know, as, as Lisa's hopeful to say, you know, we, we hope that there are more people that, you know, that long and are about the dignity of humans. I was in a place where I didn't think that at all. Just seeing what was happening. I was like, humans are bad. <laughs> like what is happening to humanity? Uh, so I want to be encouraged and remain hopeful that things will change, that things will get better. Not only for women, Asian women, but, you know, Asian Canadians too. So Tim, thank you for asking. Thank you. Thanks for sharing. Yeah, thank you. We don't have a lot of time. And what I want to do is come away. I'm always big on takeaways, you guys. So maybe give me one or two max. But I know for viewers and listeners, there are people who really are wanting to learn, are wanting to know what they can do today to stand up and speak up and, and do something against anti-Asian racism. And so... I would love your thoughts on this. I think from you, more, more importantly, that are that are in it, that have experienced it, you can speak to what can be done. Francis, let's start with you. What is something very practical that you would say that we can do collectively to to stand up against anti-Asian racism in Canada? I thought you might start with me, and I'm probably <laughs> the most ill-equipped. And so, I, I mean... I was hoping that our peers here would share practical resources, <laughs> training and avenues for taking like decisive action on this. But um, so given I expect that to be covered, I was going to more speak from the perspective of just a mentor or a Christian leader. And so the two takeaways I would say is number one, it starts with you, right? It starts with reflecting on actually your own story and then having the courage to share it. And so how many of us are carrying unprocessed unexamined uh, trauma related to our own upbringings or stories that are now being triggered repeatedly. And so we need to take the time to unpack that and process it with a mentor or a mature friend or even a professional counselor and to heal from those wounds that lie beneath the surface because it's a part of our identity and our identity impacts everything. Um, the second I would say is just what does God have to say about hate and then act as an antidote to that. Um, when we see Jesus combating hate with love, when we see him speaking about the spirit of unity and oneness in John 17, we need to see us having a missional kind of first or second generational vision um, as, as Asians and using that advantage because we can reach the diaspora to the diaspora is how a friend so powerfully put it uh, over the weekend. So those are two things I would say. Excellent. Good job, Francis. Those were great points. Lisa. Um, yeah, I've, uh, there are two that I want to share. Um, and um, the first one is those who are in a position of authority, a position of influence, whether it's because you're at a senior level of leadership, whether it's the color of your skin, whatever financial status, whatever it might be, um, you can definitely use your voice. Um, to help others along. I did not get to the position I am with finishing the task because um, 
I, let me put it the other way. I got to the position I am because there were, number one, in the Asian community, men, there's a hierarchy in the Asian world where, you know, men, women, older, younger, who opened the door for me when I was very young. And I thought they wouldn't. They surprised me. And there were men right now in my supervisory positions who said, you need to stop asking permission. I was actually told that um, you need to stop asking permission because you have what it takes. And so it was very important for me to hear that and for them to create the space and let me flounder a little bit to build up my own confidence for my own story. Um, and I want to give you an experience that will counter um, a counter example of what Tim's is, because, again, I just want to offer some balance here. Tim's dad experienced racism. You know, Chinese aren't welcome here. My dad, when he was on his way into immigrating, he didn't know a lick of English either. There was a, a Canadian gentleman, he doesn't even know his name, who helped him fill out the form and said, welcome to Canada. So again, there are allies out there. There are good people out there and those people need to help and just to continue the conversation on. Um, I also wanna say that for a practical thing and this, I'm speaking to the Asian Canadian community here right now, like, you know, everyone on the panel, there, there is a demographic of leaders who've experienced this and we are processing it. Number one, like Francis says, we need to own the story. Like everything that God allowed, he can turn into good and it become, we become strongest in our broken places. I absolutely firmly believe that. That is our redemptive God, Resurrection Sunday. Now we own that story and we have to mentor the younger generation, help them through these difficult points, walk them through it. Because again, I believe exactly what Romans tells us, overcome evil with good. And the goodness is a strength of character that wins people over. Now that's not to say just to stay silent or just be the moral minority. It is, there is a way to really combat this evil that builds up character and brings the entire church community and all its beautiful diversity up to a higher level of conversation um, and then we can, but it starts with the individual and starts with those relationships that we have. So there is very much an onus on current Asian Canadian leaders to lead the way in some of these building bridges and relationship aspect if we're really concerned about this. Good, Lisa. Thank you. Alyssa. You know, I'm a big believer that knowledge is power. And so I think my takeaway is, is to dig in and to learn. And, you know, we've, several times today have mentioned the term model minority and that's a really complex topic and like Tim said that could be like its own two-hour podcast on its own and so if you're hearing that term for the first time today like dig into that and learn about what that is learn about how things like white supremacy and systemic racism and misogyny work and how learn how to be able to point at it and identify it and say that's wrong and that's not the way that it should be and, and that's the starting point. And I think a lot of people think, you know, that anti-racism work is the loud stuff that we do in like calling out a microaggression in the moment or, you know, speaking up really loudly when something happens. And that is all true. But all of that has to be undergirded by a robust knowledge. And so that, you know, you're not second guessing yourself in the moment of like, oh, was that racist? It's like when you have the knowledge of how white supremacy works, then you're able to go in the moment, yeah, that, that's racism. I can call that for what it is right now in that moment. And so that's my encouragement. And especially I would say to the Asian Canadian community, because I think for a lot of the Asian Canadian community, because of a lot of the stuff we've talked about tonight, the kind of keep your head down mentality, but also because a lot of Asian Canadian families are more recent immigrants to North America, we're a bit not late to the conversation, but new to the racism conversation, right? We don't have grandparents that marched with Dr. King say, or like we don't have grandparents that are telling us about the civil rights movement in with from firsthand experience, things like that. And so that's okay, but it does put the onus on us to learn about the history, the history of anti-Asian racism in North America, the history of racism period in North America um, against our black and brown and indigenous brothers and sisters. And just to, yeah, to really realize like this is a, the movement for racial justice didn't start this year. It didn't start last summer when George Floyd was killed. It has been a long, long movement and we get to play a small part of that now in this moment. And that's a privilege and an opportunity. And so learning about our place in that story now is one of the most powerful things we can do. Beautiful. Thank you, Alyssa. I love that intentionality to learn, right? To learn whether it's on your own, but learning together. Powerful. Thank you. Dr. Mary, what can we do? 
Yeah, I agree with Lisa that we are surrounded with a lot of allies. Um, there are few people, certainly in my life, who are actually actively mean or actively racist. I think it's a lack of awareness. And when we ourselves are not sharing our story, how can they know? So as an example, Melinda, you didn't know my history of my mom being a spy. I am not used to talking about my history from a cultural standpoint at all. I mean, I'll talk about my career. I'll talk about my kids forever. You know, I'll talk about like trips I've been on, but I don't talk about my history. And so I think that for those in the, um, this listening in who are Asian Canadian is if you spend a bit of time and do a bit of your memoir uh, from, and not just from your birth, but generations before, you know, some history around what happened, start to look for trends. So in my family line, for example, I grew up with a very strong female fa uh, family line, but because of all the things that they've encountered along the way, um, the, the mute spirit came into our life and we were shut down. And it's just something that every single one has encountered as a result, because that's the generational thing. So being able to kind of pull together your memoirs or your autobiography about what it's like to grow up Asian, and then um, invite uh, people in your life who are genuinely interested to actually hear your story. Um, and I would say too, if, if some of us are really honest with ourselves, there's probably trauma embedded in those memories and you know, I'm a psychologist for a reason, and I certainly encourage greatly doing the work um, so that we're not so shut down or avoidant of having those difficult conversations and not feeling triggered, and therefore we avoid it. So that's what I would say. And to our allies and our friends, like, please keep asking us, even if we seem uncomfortable, even if we kind of change the subject or laugh it off. Those are all our defense mechanisms that we use to try to make sure you're comfortable um, so that we don't make you feel like you're on the spot. So just keep entering in, keep inviting the conversation, um, create safety for us, and we will share. I knew I had to bring a psychologist into the conversation to give us that picture. Thank you, mm -hmm. Dr. Perry. And I love that, like, especially for Asian Canadians, keep sharing your story. Keep sharing your story and the history of you and family so that we can you know, learn and grow and know one another more deeply. I love that. Tim, your thoughts. My thoughts are, I, I want to know more about this whole spy family. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, and I like, <laughs> like, is there anything else that I'm thinking about than your mother's a spy? Like, come on, like, hold on a second. Like, there's nothing else that I know I can think about right now, except that and your mom was a white swan. Like, yeah, that's she had a code name. That. Like, oh white my goodness. Swan. Yes. Yes. She had a code name and she had to you know, take some secret papers that she would have to put into her, like, you know, the whole trench coat thing, the image, secret papers, wow. going through the dark, getting running away from bad guys, the whole thing. It'd be a movie. Okay, that is another show. The, the <laughs> White Swan. That's what it will be called. Just Completely. the White Swan. That's show right. On See Here Love. All right. Um, okay. So, no, that, was, that was an honest question too, by the yeah. way. But however, however, <laughs> to stay on focus um, and on, on track here, I, I, so much has already been said, like, you know, leaning in, being, being allies ourselves. Like, I think, I think when I've been thinking about this whole conversation this last year, um, you know, w w with, with George Floyd to everything else that happened, I mean, that, that's a raise of awareness in, in, you know, the general public, I guess, because these things have been already happening, as I think Alyssa was saying that. Um, and, and yet, I think what people forget is that, um, like, the, like, they need to learn is so much more than just learn whatever is out there. Like, all this stuff out there is great, but everything is contextual, right? Like, I, 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 like, for instance, I mean, some of the joking white elephant in the room is, is that, you know, or the elephant in the room is that I'm the only male here, right? However, you know, when I first came into and was invited in, I was like, you know what? Hey, this is cool. There's some Koreans here. There's some Filipinos here. And then I heard that Dr. Mary's got some Taiwanese. Well, sorry, pure Taiwanese lineage, right? And so, and so, and and what I mean by that is that every situation and story is so nuanced and different, right? And so, when we talk about Black Lives Matter, sure, it, it erupted south of the border, and it, it we're not free from it in Canada, but it's different in Canada, 
right? And what does it mean to be that it's different in Canada? And what, what's the conversation in Canada that's different? And 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 for for many of us who are newer Canadians generationally, first, second, maybe even third, I mean, if we really want to be Canadian, we have to own the Canadian conversation. And the Canadian conversation is Indigenous. And if you want to call yourself Canadian, we have to wake up to how huge of a conversation that is in Canada. And, and it is, it's going to be regional. West Coast, East Coast is very different. But, but that's a very, like, that's contextual for us as Canadians. And if we want to call ourselves Canadians, Asian Canadians, East Asian Canadians, Chinese Canadians, that's part of our Canadian history. And maybe because of the model minority myth and that being perpetuated, we've kind of inflicted harm on other people groups. And so how can we be, how can we be flag bearers for justice, be allies, be people who speak into, you know, for, for me, it's, it's not even just leaning into people who may be ignorant or new to the conversation, but how do we just show love? How do we show love? You know, Francis was talking about diaspora lo- loving, honestly, Korean church props to the Korean church. When I started hearing about Korean churches doing Russian ministry, doing Thai ministry, doing like, I'm just like, what? The Chinese church doesn't do any, well, the Chinese churches that I know aren't doing that, right? And and that to me is love, right? How do we just be advocates for love to as many people who are not feeling included and make this full circle a little bit, the gender conversation in the Asian church, that's a whole other conversation, right? And that's, it's real. And and how do we, as a male, I don't know what to do about it, but I know it's there. And, and I'm, I'm like, this bit, like this circle, this group of, smart, intelligent, beautiful Asian female voices are like, I need, we need more of this, you know, because we do. Well, Tim, thank you. See, we, again, we need a Tim all to just encourage us to highlight some, but really important things, as you mentioned, you know, are the indigenous story and the support of our own Canadian story as well. I also want to say in some practical things and some of the research I've done is that uh, one of the major effects of the rising anti-Asian discrimination is worsening mental health. And so I think some practical things we can do is just resourcing people who are struggling with this with mental health resources, which you guys have mentioned. There's been some really great resources on how to be, here's something, a better bystander. There are organizations that talk about the five Ds that talk about when you see something happening, when you see racism happening on the streets, there are things as a bystander that you need to be active about and how to respond safely, or in some cases, just how to stop the escalation of. And so there's there's a lot of things that people are also saying you need to go and talk to your provincial and municipal governments on combating hate in your own neighborhoods. So there is a lot in the takeaways of action to do. The church you know, to provide spaces of learning and conversations, I think would be really, really healthy. I think the church to stand up and 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 stand with is important. And I think, again, in these places that we're seeing mental health rising and bystanders going, what should I have done or what can I do? There are resources. And on seeherelove.com, we will put those resources out for everybody. But I want to say this to you, Alyssa and Lisa and Mary and Tim and Francis. Thank you. There's so much love coming out of me and emotion on your story and your family's story and history and your courage and your bravery and your authenticity and your processing what is happening, your disorientation, the grief and lament, all of that. I'm so grateful for all of you to call you friends and some colleagues and, and know that I'm cheering you on and that you have a number of people who are listening right now and watching that are here because they support you and love you. And so I just wanted to say thank you so, so much for your presence on our show today, for your voice, your leadership in Canada. And I'm excited to see where God is going to take you in the next days and weeks and years ahead as you lead and love. So thank you. And to our viewers and listeners, thank you so much for joining us again. You can find all the information about our amazing guests and resources and blogs and bios on seeherelove.com. I've learned a lot uh, today. I have a lot to process, but the one thing I know is that God is with us, that God loves 
each one of us, Filipino, Canadian, Korean, Canadian, Chinese, Canadian, Taiwanese, Canadian, we are beautifully made and created by him. And my last thought is this, is that as we, oh, I'm like, I'm like so emotional and kind of like, as we act justly and love mercy and walk humbly with God, know that you are seen, heard, and deeply loved by him. Thanks for joining us today. See Here Love with Melinda Estabrooks is a production of Crossroads Christian Communications Incorporated, a member of the Canadian Council of Christian Charities. To support this program, please visit seeherelove.com and click the donate button or call 1-800-265-3100. And from me and the See Here Love team, thanks so much for your support.